The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CANDIDFRAME at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This is Ebody and X, and this is The Candid Frame. The act of making a photograph is often a selfish one. We see something, we respond to something, and we want to create an image that expresses what we felt, what we experienced when we saw that person or that scene in front of our lens. We want to communicate the unique way that we see and experience the world and have others take pleasure in that moment that they were not witness to. Yet there are other times where the act of making a photograph is less selfish. There are things that we photograph not merely for aesthetic reasons, but because we have something important to say or to share. And in some cases, it's because there's a hope that photographs can result in change. Photographer Shannon Johnstone is a person who has been using her talent as a photographer to create change in the lives of animals, specifically dogs that have found their way into a local animal shelter in her community. Her project, Landfill Dogs, is a project and book that consists of beautiful portraits of dogs that were and are at risk for being euthanized. And while the circumstances that inspired this project are sad, the photographs are anything but. They are beautiful and hopeful, and in many cases have made a positive change for hundreds of dogs. Shannon is definitely making a difference with her beautiful photographs, and I wanted to share her story with you, but I also hope it will create greater awareness about the importance of spaying and neutering your pets. As we say in our discussion, adoptions and rescues will not fix this problem. There are some problems in this world that we feel completely powerless to do anything about, but this is not one of them. If you are or intend to be a pet owner, make sure to spay and neuter your pets. I'll have some resources for you at the end of the show and on the website, but for now, enjoy listening to a photographer who is really making a difference. All right, well, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to, to, to have you. Um, Thank you. I'm I'm really inspired and encouraged by the work that you're doing uh, with landfill dogs. I think it's an awesome, awesome project. But for people who you know have are not familiar with it, why don't you tell us what it's about and what and what led you to do it? Okay, uh, landfill dogs is a photography project that um, tries to help the dogs who have been at the animal shelter the longest, um, who have the most need, tries to help them find homes. So what the way it works is I take one dog each week from the animal shelter and I photograph him or her at Landfill Park, which is a former landfill that's been turned into a public park. And the reason why I photograph them there is because um, I don't think most people are aware of the fact that the landfill and the animal shelter are actually managed by the same division underneath the government. And the second reason is because um, if the animals don't find a home, they will end up in a landfill after they are euthanized. And I wanted to make that connection um, through photography. And then I also wanted to 
help the dog um, to try to find a home to kind of give them one last chance to see if we could advertise them or promote them in a different way than they had been before. And you've been um, working with this organization for about 10 years. Um, tell us about how that how that started. Yeah. Um, well, I, I should say that I've been on and volunteering on and off for 10 years, but more consistently over the last um, about six years or so. But um, it started, I started out volunteering with them um, because I, I had a neighbor who saw that I had adopted a dog and she thought I was very passionate about animal overpopulation and, and helping rescue dogs. But when in fact, I didn't know anything about it at all. Um, I had adopted my dog only because I knew I didn't have time for a puppy. And, um, you know, if I could have walked into a store and bought an adult dog, if I thought I could do that, I would have done that. I didn't adopt because I cared about animal overpopulation at the time. I really didn't know anything about it. But um, she got me going to the animal shelter with her and I kept going with her every week. And I was, uh, you know, just cleaning cages. I would take pictures of the dogs. I would... Um, you know, do laundry, whatever they needed help doing. What really got to me was the fact that there was a really high turnover rate. So I would come back the next week and it'd be a whole new brand new set of dogs, um, brand new cats all in there. And I'm, I, I just couldn't get over like what, where did they all come from? And like, where are they going? Like what is happening here? And so that's why I kept returning again and again and why I really wanted to do some photography projects about it. It was something like that kind of invisible thing that was happening, like in between, like where do, like where do they go and what happens in between is what I was really interested in. Had you had you grown up with dogs or pets when you were? Uh, we had um, we had a few dogs, um, but it uh, we weren't really great pet owners. My you know my we had a dog and then. My brother would be got allergic, and so went to go live with my grandmother. It wasn't like we had this like long-standing relationship, but I've always loved animals, and I it was really important to me to have a dog as an adult. And so I waited. I, I promised myself that when I graduated from graduate school, I would have a dog. That's when I adopted my dog Lula. This is my first dog. Um, I started teaching, and I full time teaching kind of occupied a lot more time than I, I guess I thought it would. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't have time for a puppy. So that's why I ended up adopting her. Um, and I had wanted a beagle, the dog that we had growing up um, for the longest, it was a beagle. And I really wanted one that looked just like her. Um, and Lula uh, wasn't really a beagle. And she did look a lot like the dog we had growing up, but she had her own personality and her own quirks, and um, I just fell in love with her right away. Before you started the, this project, tell us a little about your other photographic work, because I know that you you, know, you studied photography, and um, previously you had mentioned that you'd been documenting yeah. your own family. Yeah, when I was in graduate school, um, I had taken a class um, with a professor named Angela Kelly, um, who was absolutely amazing. And the class was called Beyond the Family Album. And what we were looking at in that class was um, really thinking about, like, you know, what, how, how do we, like, what happens outside of the family album? And like, how do we build a family album? And you know, what myths do we tell ourselves? And how does that change the way we see ourselves along with the way that we see our family? And, you know, how do we bridge these things together? So from that class, I had started working with my own family and photographing it 
Um, and that project's called Silent Home. And actually, I still continue that. Now I kind of see that as sort of a history of my life, you know, just as, as a way for me to understand myself, I guess, as well as my family and all the changes and things that happen. But I had been doing that for a while. And within that, um, I actually do see a connection between that and the um, work with my animals in the sense that with the family photos, I was really interested in the off moments, like things that you try to hide or that you wouldn't want to photograph necessarily. So I was really interested in like, you know, what happens when someone's upset or sad or like, you know, when the family Christmas doesn't go <laughs> exactly as planned, like what, you know, and actually documenting that and showing that as part of a larger picture. And how I relate that to the animals is that like, I was really interested in sort of making visible what we try to like hide kind of, uh, making, you know, giving presence to things that we try to make absent. And I see a connection between both projects in, in that. How did you feel that in, in docking, documenting your, your family, particularly those sort of unmoments that we typically don't see in photographs, mm-hmm. helped you in terms of develop, developing your eye for what is a photograph? Because I think it's kind of interesting when you think about when you, most people photograph the key moments in their life, baptisms, weddings, so on and so forth. And there are all these sort of un- moments that most people don't consider very special, or very photographic. But from the perspective of, of a photographer, there are certain moments that may be uneventful to everyone else, but are particularly, can be just the right moment that needs to be captured. So yeah. how, how, did, how did you observing your own family? And looking for such moments help you to become a better photographer. Yeah, I think that um, I may, maybe everybody is like this, but I I, I feel like I'm particularly um, like sensitive um, in the sense that like you know my feelings get hurt easily, and I'm like kind of on edge a lot, and um, like I get around my family, and I feel like I'm kind of like hypersensitive, you know, right. and so I'm like always you know, like my antenna is up. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time okay. and my eyes are like darting all around everywhere. So it's kind of like a, I get into this like heightened mode where, and then I just have my camera with me and it's almost like a security blanket or something you know, like that. I have it with me and then I can, I kind of get through it. And, um, uh, I think just that act of like letting myself take pictures of things, even though I realize there might be mundane and boring and not really important. And then within that, like fishing through them and finding the things being like, Oh, wait a minute, that interaction or that gesture means a lot to me and finding it after the fact. I'm, I guess, one of the kinds of photographers that I take a lot of pictures and then I look at them later and I go through them as opposed to kind of knowing what I'm looking for Uh, beforehand and taking the picture. Yeah. I always felt really insecure about that too. I felt like, oh, that wasn't really a valid way. Like a better photographer would be able to just know what they were going for and find it. But I'm definitely uh, more um, reflective. Like I, I, I take a lot all at once and I don't limit myself. Like I just have at it. And then afterwards I, I sit back and, and uh, go through it in my own time, in my own quiet space. Did you discover so. when you were editing that you discovered who you were as a photographer as in terms of what you were really drawn to, what sort of themes or ideas or, or, or things that were of a visual nature that, that you were gravitating to probably even unconsciously? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's an evolving process. I mean, I feel like I'm still learning and 
and growing and, and doing things. I, I think admitting that, like, I don't always know what I'm going for when I'm taking the picture that was for me being mm-hmm. able to admit that was sort of like a really big revelation. Um, just, you know, cause I would, you know, sometimes people, even like in your family or like, especially at the animal shelter with the dogs, they're like, what are you taking a picture of? And I'll be like, it's art. You know, I'll just make a joke, <laughs> get, them, get them off my back for right now. And, and then I'll edit later. But, um, you know, I just, just trusting that and being able to trust yourself, um, to be able to explore the way that you need to explore and everybody's different, but it's the way that I feel most comfortable photographing. And your family, if they're anything like mine, were probably very resistant to a camera being directed towards them. So how did you sort of contend with that sort of resistance or sometimes maybe even antipathy towards you always being around with the camera? You know, are they not compliant, I guess, is the way to say it. They're <laughs> done. <laughs> they're done with me taking their picture. Um, yeah, they all flip me off every chance they get. And um, they, uh, I my husband says that, you know, that in those photos that everybody looks like, you know, they're, there's a lot of angst and tension and that they're all in their own world and something's going to break. And he said, but really, they're just mad at you because they're taking their picture. And, um, and you know, that's only partially true, but there's a little bit of truth in that. Um, and I think another thing I want to say about that is about my dog, Lula, the one that I adopted. She, I photographed her again and again and again, because she was my family. She was like my like before I got married, before, you know, as I like became an adult, I feel like she was like, like we were a family, me and her. And, um, so I photographed her all the time. And then like the last seven years of her life, she just, she was done. I would take out my camera and she would just get up and leave. She would not let me (laughs) photograph her. So, so, you know, I was like, Oh, you really are my family. So, So in, in, with, with the, um, Landfill Dogs Project, you wanted to show that side of animal overpopulation um, uh, that most people know about, but they really don't have a sense of. Uh, Not only in terms of what's done, but in terms of what the real impact is on the dogs, on on the people who work with them. uh, Right. And all of that. So um, before the project manifested in the way it is presently, um, you had photographed dogs being euthanized and tell us about that that earlier iteration of what you were trying to do with with the project yeah so the pictures i was doing for the animal shelter weren't really the ones that i wanted to to be doing they were the ones that helped the animals out which was great um but they were like the cats in costumes and you know dogs smiling um which i love a smiling dog Um, don't get me wrong, but I just, I wanted to take photographs that kind of looked at, um, these things that went on behind closed doors. So like that, that part where, like, where do they come in and where do they go out? Um, and that was not something the animal shelter, my animal shelter, the Wake County animal shelter that I work with, um, wanted me to photograph. And so I reached out to some of the more rural shelters in my area. And I asked them if they would be willing to let me photograph the euthanasia process. And, at the time, I just, it wasn't very creative. I just wanted to document like the process. I just asked if I could come in and document it. And I was able to find um, a shelter who let me come in um, more than once uh, and and photograph that. And the surprising thing to me about that was, you know, it's the best 
case scenario for euthanasia. It was done underneath veterinarian care. It was, um, you know, the dogs were anesthetized first. They were, um, you know, it was a very thorough process that went in, but it was just heartbreaking to watch these dogs that were, they just couldn't find a home. And that is the only reason why they were put down. There were, um, I would take that back. There were a few that were um, bite cases that were aggressive, Mm -hmm. um, but the vast majority of them were not in that group. Um, And that was really hard to see, you know, just to see all these cats the cats in particular, cats are really the underdogs at the shelter, to be honest. They, they're they the ones that get the raw deal. Um, there are a lot, far less people that adopt cats than they do dogs, but it's tragic for both of them. But just to see like a trash bag full of kittens, it's like, you know, it's like, wow, okay. You know, it it left me feeling like, okay, I can do something right now. I could take this, you know, I could take this, all these cats home with me tonight, you know, or, or could I, you know, like in what case do I become a hoarder? You know, like right. how, you know, are you hurting or are you helping? So basically it, it kind of left me feeling like the animal overpopulation is the issue here. Like, cause I could take home all of the animals that I saw being euthanized, take them home with me that night, but the shelter would fill back up with animals again the next week. And it's that cycle over and over and over again that really upset me. So in doing that project, which was called Breeding Ignorance, where I photographed the euthanasias, um, I my goal for that was to try to, I thought if people could see what happened and what went on with that euthanasia, that they would already make that leap and they would think like, oh, okay, I should spay and neuter my dog or like I should adopt an animal for an animal shelter instead of buying one because this is really sad. But that's not what happened. Instead, what people did was they saw the work and they got mad at the shelter and they said, you know, how could our shelters be doing these cruel acts? Like, look what's going on behind closed doors. As if I was like exposed yeah. making an expose of something, um, which was not my intention at all. Um, so I was really f- frustrated with myself about that, that I didn't see that coming and that I didn't, um, wasn't what I intended. Uh, what happened with that too is some people took those pictures out of context mm-hmm. and they paired it with like a letter, the most thing that I got most viral I guess one most viral from that was that they took a picture I took and they paired it with like a letter from a shelter manager talking about how you should never bring your animal to the animal shelter because you know a b c and d all these cruel things were going to happen and I I was like that is not what I meant for these pictures to voice you know and like you take it out of context like that and it completely changes the meaning of what I wanted and I didn't ask for that and I didn't intend it and I found I couldn't even curb it. Like I kept asking people to, I found myself all time, like writing, being like, take it, cease and desist. And then they're like, what are you going to (laughs) do? And I was like, uh, I don't, I don't call a lawyer. (laughs) Do you mean like, I basically had, it was like a toothless threat that I could give them, you know? So anyway, that is what led me into landfill dogs is I wanted to make something, make photographs that would be more shareable and that would be more beautiful. And that would, um, be able to help the dog before the time ran out in them. So it wasn't just you're looking at something feeling powerless, but that you could see the photographs and feel like the power was in your hand to change this animal's fate. So tell us about how this changed, because the uh, for people who have not seen the images yet, there are these beautiful portraits that are made of these dogs in this, and it's called Landfill Park, which is formerly a landfill. 
Uh, but tell us about the impetus for the idea and how these images uh, started to, to happen. Yeah, so I, um, I really wanted to show them, the, the dogs, I wanted to show them um, out running and jumping and enjoying life and feeling free. Um, I, I think of the photographs as the dog's wishes and dreams. They spend like 23 and a half hours or more in a cage um, with basically like, you know, just sensory deprived. Like they're the only thing that they can experience is the sound. It's like a deafening barking and an agitation. And it's funny because when they go out to landfill park, like it's every sense is like engaged except for the sound. It's quiet there. Like you can hear the wind or maybe some birds, but like everything else is on except for that. And so I wanted to kind of have these photographs that kind of show that kind of like coming to life, you know, this, the dogs in a completely different environment than the one that they're engaged in and living in. Um, uh, I imagine them just as very formal portraits. Um, and as I started working, the pictures kind of evolved into them have been playing a lot more, which was something that I loved. I, I didn't think of that at first. I imagine them very like sullen looking dog just sitting there. And I have a lot of those, but um, the ones where they're actually loving life are the ones that I ended up uh, pictures that I ended up loving more than, than I was expecting. And in handling the dogs, cause it can be very difficult to get a dog to cooperate for a ph photograph. Right, so right. how, how do you right. work with that? Are you working by yourself? Are you working with a partner? So I, I always have someone with me. Um, in the beginning I thought I was going to do it all by myself, but, um, I realized very quickly that that was not going to work. So I always have someone with me handling the dog and um, holding the treats and the leash and everything. Um, I Photoshop them out um, because I want it to be just about the dogs. All the dogs are on leashes. That's a question I get a lot too is how do you how do you get them to, you know, where's this fenced in park? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, no, actually they're, they're on leashes. Um, so um, I just take them out because I want it to be about their wishes and dreams. And in, in my mind, in their dreams, they're not – they're not tethered. They're not caged. Yeah, because it's 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 one thing to photograph your own dog that it's been trained properly, but when you have a dog that's like been in a kennel, it's just like it's unpredictable. And looking yeah. at the pictures, I mean, that's a good thing to know. Uh, yeah, because in the pictures, I, I, that's one of the things I wondered about. I said, how how is she getting these dogs to behave so well? Yeah, no, they, they're not usually doing that, um, behaving well. <laughs> I mean, they're not bad. They're just, they're just, um, they're excited. I yeah, don't blame them exciting. either. I mean, it, they're just happy to be out. And, um, it's funny because by the end, they're usually exhausted. Um, this is about a half a mile walk up to the top okay. and it's a pretty steep hill, um, up to the top of the landfill park and then a walk back down. And so most of them haven't really been exercised. I mean, there are people that come and walk them, volunteers that walk them every day, but, um, a lot of them haven't had like prolonged walk like that. Um, so they're usually really tired. I love seeing them sleeping in the car on the way back home. Most of them do. It's really cute. They put their heads down and like out. <laughs> so, what was, you know, you, you mentioned before that you photograph your family and I'm sure you photographed other people as well, but how did photographing people help you when it came to photographing dogs? Um, well, I, um, I guess this goes back to um, talking about how 
how I photograph, which is um, I tend to take a lot of pictures and then I go through them later. That process of not really knowing what I am looking for um, is something that I feel kind of insecure about and feel kind of bad that I don't already like know what I'm looking for and know yeah. what I want. But um, it's actually something that is helpful because a lot of times I see things that I wasn't expected expecting to and I just shoot through it and then at the end I take a step back and look at it and see um, some things that I love within that so I guess the thing that I learned from my family is I just keep photographing all the way through whatever situations we're in whether they like it or not and that's something that I do with the dogs as well um, there's a photographer Henry Hornstein and um, I love his work and he said something once um, he said a couple things actually one of them is a dog improves any picture, which I love. <laughs> and then the other thing that he is um, really adamant about is photographing what you love. And I think people take pictures of things they want to look at. And I love dogs. So it's like not hard for me at all. Like I love tails. I love like the floppy ears. I love like the profile of a dog. Like, like looking at it and photographing it is something that I just love to do. I think one of the, the, similarities of photographing dogs and photographing children, at least for me, is the fact that at some point you just got to let them be themselves. Because if you try to impose something on them, uh, more than likely you're going to fail. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And actually I've never photographed children, um, but, <laughs> but yeah, they, yeah, the dogs don't, yeah, they don't usually do what I want them to do. It was funny when I started the project, that reminds me, when I started the project, I had originally planned on shooting with a large format camera mm -hmm. and I had like hiked up like a tripod and, you know, four by five camera all the way up to the top of the landfill park. And I set it all up and I had brought my dogs there to photograph, I like, guess, test shots. Yeah. So, you know, it took a really long time. I had everything set up and it was perfect. And then I'm like, the dog is over like, on the other side of the park. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I was like, this is like, my dogs are, are not like sensory deprived. They're going to, you know, they're they're easy to work with. So like, I'm like, this is just not going to work. I know this. Yeah. So then I started with the medium format and I was like, okay, I'll just shoot with the medium format. But then I realized like in my first few photo shoots, how much film I was going through because I was needing to shoot a lot. Um, especially knowing the way that I work. And then also just the dogs, not, not knowing what they were going to do. And, um, I brought my digital, my DSLR with me to, you know, kind of as a backup and to keep shooting. And when I looked back at them, I was like, well, they look good. Like the DSLR doesn't look that much worse than the, the uh, medium format. So I thought, well, I'll just start cropping these so they look more consistent. And that's how I ended up with using the square format. And then eventually I was just like, I can't afford to do this project in medium format. Like it's going to require like thousands of rolls of film and, so I was like, I think DSLR will be fine. So how how did these images initially get out there to create awareness that these dogs were available for 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 adoption and for, for you know finding a home? So um, I I began. Um, I had a, a, um, a small exhibition at in Raleigh. Um, uh, of the first few photos that I, I did with the project, um, the shelter would display the photos on their website too. Um, and 
I think there were a couple local articles that were written and that got the word out to actually a former student that I had who turned into a really wonderful documentary filmmaker. And she has this blog and she shared a post about the project that I was doing. And from there, um, someone from Mashable, uh-huh. which I had yeah. never heard of, I was like not aware of any of these things, wrote to me and said, oh, you know, we were looking at that blog. We want to do a post. And then from there, someone from BuzzFeed, and I'd never heard about Buzz. I didn't even know what that was. Um, they contacted me and wanted to do an article. And then from there, it just like spread like wildfire. That's when someone from the ABC News with uh, World News with Diane Sawyer contacted me about doing uh, um, a piece for their America Strong series. And um, after that, it just catapulted the project. That must have been caught you completely by surprise. Yeah, I, I hadn't in, intended on any of that. So like I, you know, that former student I have, I'm like, you are the one <laughs> that like, <laughs> like started this because I don't think um, that it would have gotten the attention that it got if she hadn't shared that post. And it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of blogs out there and it just just struck a chord. This project struck a chord with a lot of people. And um, that was a really fortunate thing because a lot of dogs have been adopted and sent to rescue um, because of that. So I photographed, I guess now's a good time to say that. I photographed 153 dogs and of that group there's been 134 who have um, either gotten a home or been sent to rescue and um, and 14 have been euthanized to that group and the rest are waiting and what to me is exciting uh, not about the euthanasia part but about the dogs that got homes is this is the population who like had been overlooked the longest like these are at-risk dogs these are not the dogs that like are like highly adoptable dogs and that's i mean their fate was changed because people cared and because they shared their pictures again and again and that makes me really happy i have a youtube channel in which i regularly post critiques of images that are submitted to the candid frame flicker pool there is some fantastic work being posted there by some really talented photographers And fairly frequently, I'm so impressed by a person's work that I want to see more. And I look to see if they have a website. Because as convenient as it can be to look at their images on Flickr, I think I can have a better sense of that photographer's vision and intent when I take a look at their website. Because unlike Flickr, I'm not seeing everything that they've shot. I'm seeing the work that the photographer considers their best. That represents who they are as a photographer and as an artist. I really get a true sense of the photographer when I see how they've curated their own work on their website, which is why I believe it's so important for any serious photographer to have their own website. And there's no easier and better way to do that today than by using Squarespace. Try it out and see how Squarespace can make a difference in the things that you are passionate about. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. That's, that's wonderful. But, let's, but we have to talk about the, you know, the problem uh, yeah. that leads to this. Because I think 
as as wonderful it is to hear about stories about dogs finding a home and getting adopted and being rescued, there's a huge problem that that you yourself, I read, have said that adoption is not going to be the solution for it. That's right. So yeah. so let's let's talk about what are the key issues that people really need to be sensitive to in terms of the overall population of dogs and, and cats. Yeah, um, that's very, very true. So spaying and neutering is the the one thing that I, is going to change that cycle, you know, that's going to make the animals stop coming into the animal shelter to begin with. So people spayed and neutered. Um, I just I can't get over why there's such a resistance to that or just apathy. I, I can't figure out if it's apathy or resistance or a combination of the two. This is not going to change. I mean, animal animal population will not change until we have some kinds of laws that, that regulate um, spaying and neutering. I just, people are not being responsible because they want to be good, responsible citizens. Um, they're just recklessly having animals. And because of that, Wake County Animal Center gets 30, now the average is 30 new animals every day. Like 30 new animals oh, every day. Oh. Like that's mind-boggling to me and then we're like this city that i live in raleigh is pretty urban it's like a progressive city it's not a lack of education um in in this area so um i just feel like that's really the key um because you're right we cannot adopt i don't think we can adopt our way out of this problem you can't there are too many animals and there are not enough homes. And you mentioned before we started recording here the fact that even if people have a unfixed dog in fenced area, that the chances oh, right. of them getting still getting pregnant is really, really high. Could you discuss that a little? Because I think that surprised me and I'm sure yeah. it would surprise a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so like dogs have just this amazing sense of smell. Um, I think I read somewhere they can smell a teaspoon of sugar in an Olympic sized swimming pool. <laughs> so if you have an unaltered animal, if you have a bitch and she's in heat, if you have a male dog, he will find her and, and nothing will stop him. Like he can impregnate her through a fence. Um, if you take that dog out for a walk, they will all come and find you. <laughs> Any unneutered male, um, they, they can smell that. It drives them insane. Even in the shelter, like you see a, a dog and she's in heat. And the male dogs, like even if they're on the other side of the room, they're, they're like going nuts for her. That, you know, even if you try, think you're keeping your dog separate or your cat separate and that they're not going to, you know, they're not coming in contact. If that animal goes outside at all, like you're at risk for getting that dog pregnant. And one dog, like your one dog that you have can very easily turn into like 11 or 12 dogs. Right. And then it's like, those are 12 more mouths that you have to feed. That's 12 more vaccinations. That's right. like, you know, it's a lot more money. And most people get into a situation where they're like, I can't take care of this anymore. You know, I can't, we can't afford to have all these animals or so they, you know, then surrender them to the animal shelter. Um, and the cycle just keeps continuing on and on or people adopt what's a really cute little puppy, you know, from an animal shelter. This is another thing that happens all the time. They adopt a cute little puppy. They don't train it and they bring back a dog who's, like full grown a full grown puppy without any manners yeah. you know and that is actually that's the, kind of the profile of a lot of the landfill dogs is that they're the most typical landfill dog that i've photographed is about a year old maybe two years old and they're like nobody took them time to train them 
they were just, they're not bad dogs. They just don't know. You know, it's kind of like, ah, it's, I just can't deal with this problem anymore. <laughs> you know, and this like really great animal becomes like a problem just because they didn't take the time to teach it, not to like jump on people and to like, you know, like, no, not everything you want to put your mouth on is okay. And um, I'm digressing. I'm sorry. No, you, you, in fact, you're not. Because I think that that's, we have to be aware that the dogs aren't the problem we are. Oh, definitely. Know? Definitely. There's... um. Actually, and this is a, another point that I'd love to make is I didn't know anything about pit bulls before I started this project. And this is related because when you look at the photographs, you might think this is a project about pit bulls. Mm -hmm. um, but I, all I wanted to do is photograph the dogs that needed the most help, that were the most overlooked. And it just so happens that in my county shelter, those are mostly pit bulls. Yeah. It's like they're like 90% pit bulls. And um and I had never really been around them or experienced them. I, I actually thought that like I that they were kind of vicious dogs that were unpredictable and I bought into all of that whole negative stereotypes. And I, I like to think that I'm educated, right? I was like, I went to grad I know I came out of school, I'm like teaching at a college and I'm like afraid of a pit bull until I started working with them. And I was like, wait, wait a minute, these are really good dogs. Like they're like look you right in the eye and they like look for direction mm -hmm. and they look for like, what do you want me to do? I'll do whatever it is you want me to do. Just, just tell me. And I, I couldn't get over that. Like my, the, my, my Lula dog, the one that I adopted did not much, not eager to please at all. Like she, she, <laughs> she, she's going to do her own thing. And she's like, you know, she wouldn't even greet me when I'd come home. She'd be like, eh, you're back. Yeah. You know, but like these, these dogs would be like, you're here. Oh, I love you. You know, like they, they're very, very bouncy and they have a lot of energy um, which is why I think they get a bad rap is because they're like, if you don't train them, they, they end up being out of control. They're just hard to like. Yeah. Dogs need and want discipline. They need yeah. structure. Structure. And, and if you give that to them, uh, they'll be wonderful. But if yeah. you, if you are just affectionate them to all the time and you feed them and do all those sort of nice things that everybody thinks about when they're thinking about a dog and you don't give them that, the other stuff, the structure, and the, they are going to get out of control. And and you're going to be yelling at them and talking at them as if they understand English, which they don't. They just, they just behave based on how you've behaved with them. Right. I think one other thing that gets a lot of people – um, don't do that think they could do better is um, exercise the animal I think oh, that yeah. especially if you have a young dog they're going to need a lot of attention they're going to need to be included in things and they're going to need exercise and I think that all requires time people don't want to think about that they just want to take home a dog and it's like they want it to lay there and look nice and pet it and then walk away <laughs> yeah. you know but it needs to like be part of the pack um and and getting back to the uh, the spaying and neutering, I know yeah. that uh, it's really important to do. And I think that you know, uh, if people look into it, if cost is an issue, I think there are a lot of resources that are out there that will help people with respect to that. Uh, and I think it's really well, well worth to you know make the effort to find out about it because uh, I live in Altadena, which is near Pasadena. And I constantly see reports on uh, this, this community site uh, uh, that I'm constantly going to. And every week there are people whose dogs have gotten out of their yards. Mm -hmm. And as, as secure as we would like to think our properties are, dogs 
will find a way out. Yeah. And if they're not spayed and neutered, they're they're they may come preg- come out pregnant or or impregnate someone else, even though our best intentions yeah. have you know have in terms of not getting them spayed and neutered, thinking that okay, I'm going to keep them in the house, nothing's going to happen. Dogs are inventive creatures, and if they want to get out, they will get out. And if they're not spayed and neutered, you know that's that can be part of the problem, which is why so it's important to eliminate that risk. One of the things about the animal shelter, um, I think the statistic is 80% of the animals that are in the Wake County Animal Shelter are not altered. And I was really surprised about that. So these are the dogs that are like getting out. They're more likely to roam because they're searching for something if they're not altered. But it's also, um, I would say it's indicative of people just not, they're just failing to do something that would be really easy for them to to do yeah. um which is as you said there's low cost bay and neuter clinics all over um even down here like you adopt there's like flyers everywhere in the animal shelter but like here's a 20 dollar fix yeah. you know here's here's you can contact this vet who who's willing to you know do this for half price you know there's all kinds of options so it's just really a lack of like resistance um from the community, which is really sad because the result of that is going to be this never ending stream of dogs that we continue to euthanize because there's no place to put all the dogs and or cats that, that we have. And if you're not willing to take like, like not just you, but like if, you know, if it drives me nuts when people say, Oh no, it's just the simple math. You know, there's a way we can save all of them. I'm like, well, if you are not willing to take them home, like you're not going to go and take like a hundred dogs right now from that shelter and empty it out because it'll fill back up again. Like it'll, it will fill back up again by the end of next week. So if you're not going to go empty that out right now, then you're, then no, there's no place to put them. Like, where are you going to, like dogs need to be included and a life in a cage is not worth living in my point of view. You had published the book uh, through Blur, but you had also uh, approached traditional publishers about publishing this book. Tell me about um, what that experience was like and what resulted in you deciding to, to self-publish the book yourself. Yeah, um, yeah. I actually, after the, um, the uh, piece from ABC, um, after that aired, actually, I had a couple of publishers contact me about making a book out of this. And that's that was sort of like a, a dream I had, but I didn't really think it was going to happen. So I was really excited and I ended up choosing um, a publisher. It's a small um, publisher. Can I say the name? Yeah. Yeah. Go so, ahead. Okay. It's um, Skyhorse, um, a small publisher from New York. And they didn't really give me a lot of guidelines or a lot of like restrictions, which I interpreted as like freedom to tell the entire story. And it was just miscommunication on my, my part. Mm-hmm. And so you know, we got like a year down or maybe it was like nine months down the road. Um, and I submitted, it was really important for me to be able to show some of the breeding ignorance, some of those euthanasia pictures, and then show some of like the, um, I had done some, um, evidence photography for the humane society on their puppy mill busts to kind of show like the breeding side of the animals and like the commodity and like, you know, what, what does that look like? You know, what does it look like for the animals that don't get like adopted? You know, the ones that are like breeding, so I wanted to show some of that. And those pictures are really sad. It's not the point of the book, but it was really important to me to have that background information in there. And they said, no. And I, I said, well, okay, we're going to do this my way or we're not going to do it. And they said, 
okay, we'll not do it then. And, <laughs> and I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> so I didn't, I wasn't, I thought they would, I thought we would have a negotiation. I didn't think it was like, um, you know, that, that was the end. So, um, all in all, though, um, when I shopped the project around after that, I have found a lot of similar um, sentiments from other publishers, which are, this is really, the way you want to tell this is a very sad story. And it's really hard to tell, uh, sell, to sell yeah. a sad story. And we're not just not sure how many books this is going to sell. And I thought that's a terrible irony, since these dogs are the ones we can't find homes for anyway, you know, so like, that's the point, right. <laughs> you know, is that it's about that. And so I've realized that, you know, if it was, if I weighed the options of how important was it to me to tell that entire story and how important was it to me to sell books. And I went with the, it's important for me to tell the entire story. And I was ready to move forward and finish the book. So I went ahead and um, published it with blurb and I'm so happy I did that. They were phenomenal. They were so great to work with. And, um, we're actually, um, I think, down to like the last hundred copies of the book now at this point too, which is kind of nice oh, yeah. to be in that position. So, so tell me about you know when you take on doing your book on your own, uh, it's not about the photo, just about the photographs. It's about the layout. It's about the design. It's about the. Te That's a lot of lot of work. Um, what help did you solicit in terms of, you know, putting it all together? Even with the. Skyhorse, I wanted to work with um, one of my colleagues who's a graphic designer, and she, they, I, I told them I wanted to work with her, and so they said that was fine. So her and I had already been in contact about her doing that kind of text and image relationship. Okay. Um, and we have a really – her name is Dana Gay, and she's an amazing graphic designer. Um, and so she all along was you know listening to me and kind of working uh, with me on uh, – visualizing this the way that I was hoping to, um, but putting her own art into it, which was great. And um, I also had my own editor before, even when I was working with um, the publisher, just because I wanted to have someone double check. I, I was working with a lot of terminology and, and um, statistics that I wasn't sure that Skyhorse was going to be familiar with. And I wanted to make sure I had an editor that understood the project and understood like, okay, this might mean this in another context, but in this context, it means this. So um, I had my own editor already. So this is a long way of saying, I basically was already working with um, two people who were very, very integral and helpful to me. Her name was, I, my editor was named Iris Sutcliffe, who is also a phenomenal editor. Um, and she's very, very thorough, um, which was great. And um, Chris Jordan, uh, who wrote the foreword to the book, was someone who um, has just been a really great mentor to me. Um, and I was really honored when I asked him if he would write the foreword, and he said yes. So basically, I was already working with all these elements, and I had already done the manuscript, and I had already had everything together. So it was easy for me to just move forward and, and complete it. Yeah. Well, you, you had talked earlier about how you sort of discover your work. You know, you shoot a lot, and then you sort yeah. of discover, oh, this is this is the image that works for me here. And you kind yeah. of that. How did the editing process for the book help you refine that even further? Yeah, that that um, you know that that actually is even um, that gets even trickier because I. 
something that I struggle with is I, I sometimes want to treat all like once I do an image, I want to treat them all as equals, you uh-huh. know, and I, I, I imagine them having feelings so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I don't want them to be left out. And I'm like, Oh, that one didn't get in the book, <laughs> you know, as if it's going to matter to that image. Um, but I just, I guess I just don't want it to be forgotten or I worry that like an animal will, will not have gotten all of the, you know, publicity it should have. Um, so the index in the back of the book was really important to me. So I felt like, okay, even if I end up cutting one of the dog's portraits that, you know, just didn't flow right, you know, at least they'll still be in, in the index. And then that got hard too, because there's 140 and I had to like, I had to draw the line at some point, even though I was going to continue on the project. And then I'm like, Oh, poor Ruby didn't get in the book, (laughs) you know? Um, but anyway, I, that, um, Um, how I went through many, many, many iterations of how I wanted the book to be in the layout and like which pictures were going to be large and which ones are going to be small. And it was a lot of just laying out and reconfiguring and putting them back together. And yeah, it was, that was painful process. I have to say it's a lot easier to edit photos for me than (laughs) it is to lay out a book. (laughs) I, I guess I think some people just have a natural, knack for like the seeing things at first I put them in chronological order and then I put them by season and then I was like that's not right either and so I just you know well that's that's where our help of a good designer is so helpful and she was so patient with me she was she was great she she's amazing like I'm sure that one of the temptations, as you have mentioned before, is uh, you see all these dogs and you want to take all of them home. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I, re- I read that you have an agreement with your husband in terms of uh, putting a limit on that. A limit on that. Tell us. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when we got married, he told me he had a prenuptial, and so he goes, "I, I need you to tell me that we're a three dog family." And you are already one dog over that limit right now. <laughs> <laughs> So, cause at the time we had four dogs and two cats. Um, oh. so, um, uh, and my Lula dog passed away in, um, August. So we're down to our three dog limit right now. When we still have the two cats as well. Yeah. My wife is pushing for a third dog and it's like, yeah. I'm like going I, I, two, you know, two, one's 15 years old, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I, I, I might be, I might've been open to it, but at 15, Introducing a new dog to the house would just be, I think, fairly traumatic for him. So I think we're just going to have to wait and just two will just have to be the limit for right now. Yeah. Um, although three is a very good number. Um, <laughs> like, typically, the two of them gang up on one of them is what ends up happening. <laughs> and, and before we wrap up, what are the three dogs that you do have? We have um, Jorge Francisco. We call him George, though. Um, then we have Jeffrey. His name is Jeffrey, 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 but we just call him Jeffrey. And then we have Dudley Do-Right. Um, so they, um, none of them came from the Wake County Animal Center, but um, they are all rescue dogs. George was found as a puppy in the side of I-85. And Dudley was found behind a dumpster as a puppy. He had a congenital defect um, and he was really sick. Um, and he needed emergency surgery to fix it. And my husband adopted him right after that. And then Jeffrey is a three-legged black lab mix that belonged to um, 
a neighbor of mine who was evicted and didn't take the dog with him. So he was acquired. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're very happy that they have a home with you. Yeah, and our next dog will come from the Wake County Animal Center. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and I've, I've tried to press for a pig or a rabbit, but no. Or, or he put his foot down on that. Okay. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners mm. to discover and explore. And it can be anyone. It can be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, I, I mean, I, the first thing came to mind is Chris Jordan. I just love his work. Um, and he just, what I love about his work is he is able to visualize for us things that we cannot see with our eyes. And so he puts like statistics together for us to be able to see. It's like we can kind of then have an emotional response to something that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. And I just find that really exciting and beautiful. Um, awesome. I guess Treyer Scott is another um, photographer who I really love. She is also a photographer of um, dogs um, and animals in general, and I've always liked her work a lot. I'm just looking over because her book is on my desk here <laughs> as I'm talking to you. And where can people go to find out more about you and your work and, and purchase the book? Sure. Um, LandfillDogs.com is the um, uh, website for the Landfill Dogs Project. And um, I have my own website at shannonjohnstone.com. Um, and you can get to Landfill Dogs from there, too. And $10 of uh, each purchase goes to the uh, the shelter? Yeah, well, it goes to the Heal Heart Fund. Heal which Heart is, Fund, yeah. yeah. What that is is that Heal it, um, provides heartworm treatment for the dogs who are heartworm positive um, with the Wake County Animal Center. They can't be treated at the center because um, when dogs are going through heartworm treatment, they have to be kept calm. And they have to be able to be crated, and there's no way to do that at the shelter. So, um, this is something that um, we do for dogs that end up in foster care, or for people who recently adopt a lample dog, that they they can um, they can get heartworm treatment. Most of lample dogs are heartworm positive. Well, thank you so much for for making the time for me today. I really appreciated uh, having the chance to talk with you and to share this with my with my audience. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for joining me. To find out more about spaying and neutering your pets, as well as resources that can help you provide better care for your furry friends, visit the ASPCA.org. They also provide resources for finding shelters in your community where you can find a dog, a cat, a great home. And if you are in the Los Angeles area on the weekend of January 30th, join me for a full day of street photography. Conducted through the Los Angeles Center of Photography in Hollywood, I will be taking a small group of students through the process of seeing and shooting in the streets of Los Angeles, and I would love to have you join us. Find out more by clicking on the link on the Candid Frame website or visiting lacphoto.org. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.